dear listener, and welcome once again to Radio Mortwork. I'm Colm Cairns, and with me, as ever, is my uh, partner in arms, arms to carry books with, arms to read books with, Rose Fortune. Hi. I was stretching a stretching the pun to Prachetti and Tinness there. I think it worked. I hope so. I hope so. So today um, we're covering we're covering sorcer- sorcery rather um, the uh, the fifth Discworld book. So before we launch into any analysis on it, I'll just uh, refresh the memories of uh, anyone who hasn't read it in a while or anyone who's never read it before with his plot summary. So it's about. Ipslor the Red, wizard, and Coin, his eighth son, a sorcerer, which are much rarer than wizards and generally bad news for the world. On the night Ipslor is due to die, he has a long chat with Death. By the end of it, Coin has been entrusted with a wizard staff possessed by the spirit of Ipslor. Death allows the staff to be handed on to Coin so long as there is a loophole to his fate that the inevitable apocalypse will not be quite inevitable. The apocalypse can be averted if Coin throws away his staff. We fast forward a few years on, and Coyne walks into unseen university like he owns the place, ousts the uh, prospective Arch Chancellor Wazy Goose, um, taking over himself. Uh, Rincewind, our, our intrepid hero of the first two novels, uh, has a bad feeling about this, so he, the luggage and the librarian, clear out and head to the pub, where he meets Conina, the daughter of Cohen the Barbarian, who has stolen the Arch Chancellor's hat at the hat's own request. She asks Rincewind uh, to help her on her quest to Alkali. The luggage accompanies them, but the librarian stays behind. They board a ship, are attacked by pirates, and the hat is promptly stolen, so they follow the pirates to Alkali. They're captured by Abrim, the Grand Vizier there, who already has the hat. He throws Rincewind into a snake pit where he meets Nigel, the Destroyer, who is learning to be a barbarian by the book. Um, very literally. In Angmorpork, Coin has declared wizards are more powerful than all kings and turns a patrician into a lizard. He's declared the university obsolete and built a new floating tower in the city. Abram has put on the Archchancellor's hat and is fighting the sorcery power of wizards in his own tower, which has floated on over to Alkali. Um, so it's all hitting the fan, basically. Rincewind takes the flying carpet back to the university by himself and decides to face the sorcerer with a sock containing a half brick. Um, surefire material for besting your common or garden sorcerer or any, any apocalyptic threat at the same time the Angmorpork Tower defeats the hat but Coin throws an apocalyptic tantrum when he is told that wizards rule under the gods he traps the gods in an alternate reality this causes the release of the ice giants from their prison and they begin freezing everything Rincewind eventually convinces Coin to throw the staff away but Ipsor's power fights back the other wizards leave the tower, but Rincewind rushes forward, sending him and Coin to Dungeon Dimensions, where Death strikes the staff and takes Ipslar's soul. Rincewind orders Coin to return to the university, and using his other sock filled with sand, attacks the creatures from the Dungeon Dimensions as a distraction. Coin smashes the peril, the gods are set free, and this stops the march of the Ice Giants. Coin returns the university to its former, uh, quote-unquote, glory, and then steps into his own brand new dimension. The librarian takes Rincewind's battered hat, which gets left behind when he went into Dungeon Dimensions, and places it on a pedestal inside the library. After all, a wizard will always return for his hat. Um, and that that is that is basically sorcery in a nutshell. So, Rose, what were your um, how how long had it been since you? 
That was us just, but how long had it been since you had read Sorcery before reading it for the podcast? I definitely only read Sorcery once before, because mm-hmm. a lot of it was almost new to me. Like, it was very, very vague memories okay. I had. So it must have been years, and it was definitely one of the ones I read when I went on a complete Pratchett binge. Yeah. When I discovered Terry Pratchett first, I went on a quest and found every Terry Pratchett novel in every library and bookshop I encountered. Mm-hmm. I read them all as quick as I could. And so they just sort of run together a little bit. Yeah, those ones yeah. In that time period. Yeah. This is definitely one of those. Yeah. And uh, did this one? Um, like I've been kind of finding it isn't isn't real. Well, attitudes are divided. I think to probably out of like all oh, what what is it forty one uh, Discord books, probably everyone is someone's favorite. But I, I feel like uh, sorcery isn't all that highly thought of, and it's kind of seen as like like a bit of a throwback after the advancements of equal rights and Mort. Um, so reading them in sequence like we are now, did you find that? Like, did you find it jarring to read having just finished Mort? Yeah, I did actually. It's definitely. Well, I, I don't want to spoil the list that we're doing, mm-hmm. but I would say it's definitely not as good as Mort. That's a spoiler. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't know. I think that it seems like Rincewind was sort of half developed in places. Like, you know, when he decides to take the carpet or when he actively decides to go and fight the sorcerer yeah, like he's yeah. making active decisions to face danger mm-hmm. even though he's terrified and half the time he's trying to talk himself out of it and talk himself into it at the same time which must give him such a headache but it almost felt like it should slot in between the color of magic and the light fantastic or something like it was in the middle of his yeah journey like you've said before that it seemed a little bit like Rincewind should have been more of a developed character like maybe he should have had some some success after those two books like maybe mm. he should have gone back and been a student and been slightly more successful than he'd been before and not just turned into the assistant librarian feeding the <laughs> yeah, librarian yeah. bananas so this kind of felt like like that as well like he sh- should have been a bit further along like he should have been doing something like, he maybe shouldn't have been so terrified all the time, but at the same time, he was taking some of these risks, so it was kind of like a weird hybrid. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we do get that, like, uh, like I said last time, we get the subtle uh, indication in Mort that all hasn't gone according to his optimistic plans at the end of Life Fantastic, but here it's confirmed, as said, like, he's just, he's more or less back at square one, he's still a useless wizard. And I think what you're saying about his, uh, like, his occasional pangs of bravery and did that he sort of had a loose end in this book mm-hmm. to me it was probably like um i i had, i feel like i read sorcery more than once after getting it um and and quite like you know quite liked some bits of it very much which we'll get on to but uh for me to think that like you know looking out for it here the kind of the the drawbacks of it are like apparently pratchett uh i i've i don't have a source on this but i have heard that apparently he only wrote it because just for fan demand, fan demand for another Rincewind book, and you know he didn't really see any more legs in the character. Yeah. Uh, but he does it, and I think that like uh, that sort of shows in a like Rincewind's cowardice and re- like his kind of reluctant terrorism. I felt like for me, it felt a lot more grating at times than it was in like Color Magic and Life Fantastic, where. I suppose in in those you do you have a great foil in Two Flower who is so like naively optimistic and oblivious of danger that you can sympathise with Rincewind when he's just you know trying to like drag Two Flower of just strolling headlong into some horrible situation and you don't have that foil here but also like 
in the color of magic, there's no real plot for Rincewind to be running from. You know, like like the, it's just about him and two travel, uh, traveling around. There's no exterior threat, nothing greater that you feel they should be facing. You know, that like they have to, an obligation to face as the book's protagonists. Mm-hmm. So, like again, his his you know his cowardice is quite funny, and it it's just seems almost relatable in the, that. And in Life Fantastic, he's still a coward, but he do, you don't really have the reluctance because quite early on, after he has the meeting with the spells in his head, he decides, "I want to go to Ang Morpork," and then he goes to you know he goes to Ang Morpork and tries yeah. to sort things out. Um, and here, you like he he doesn't have that same drive, so he's just kind of ping ponging around the the main plot, kind of feeling cowardly and reluctant, mm. and you just feel sort of like uh, you know you're like oh you know the world's ending like come on get out like get over yourself for a minute like try and do something about it but also at the same time you wonder why he has you i found myself questioning why he has to do anything about it because like his his actual role is a lot less integral like in the uh beyond to like interesting times which we'll cover later he's sort of central to the plot by being the great wizard Mm-hmm. And the the Red Army have set him up as their, you know, like almost a, a messianic type figure. Um, so again, you can somewhat relate to his reluctance when he's just like, I- "I'm not all you think I am." Mm-hmm. But it it sort of like also makes sense that he's kind of tied to the plot, and you kind of know he'll come good to the end, and that basically that there is a conflict between between him feeling incapable or unwilling to play the part of the hero, but sort of knowing that he kind of is in you know in, in this plot that's going on like in interesting times and in life fantastic and to a certain extent and I, I i think i've only read last continent once so i can't remember all that well but i feel like i think it's early on your man tells him he's going to have to bring back the rain so he sort of knows you know it's him mm-hmm. whereas here there's nothing really that like other than you know narrative convention because he's the protagonist that says he should be the one to confront Coin, or he should be the one to do anything about it. So really, his his reluctance should feel a lot more reasonable. But from a reader's point of view, it just kind of feels more annoying because, you know, you know he'll get back to confronting the the villain or the, the you know the main conflict of the novel, but you don't know why he's going to do that. Um, <laughs> and and like his uh, like particularly once once the hat's gone, like once they take the hat to Al Ali. And Abram takes the hat. Like, why isn't he just out of there at that point, you know? Yeah. Um, Do you know what? That's a really good point about him having the foil in mm-hmm. Two Flower. And in this, it, it doesn't work quite so well because it starts off with him having Conina as the foil. Yeah. And it's just like he kind of has a crush on her, but they, yeah. they don't really explore that. And, and yeah, that was kind of all over the place, wasn't it? Like, yeah, yeah, he blushes every once in a while. And, like. and he initially gets jealous when Nigel shows up and him and yeah. Conina are making doe eyes at one another. And then that just seems to disappear later, like, and there's no real, you know, moment of, uh, I, I, like, other than, I suppose, that he has bigger fish to fry when he gets upset when they're bad-mouthing wizards and, you know, he goes off to the university at the end. But, like, there's no real sense of him saying, well, that ship has sailed, I'm not going to get Conina. It just sort of, tail, tra- I'm sorry, it just trails off. Yeah, I mean, the luggage actually has more emotional yeah, development than that. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> a good point. And you have Nigel as kind of a sort of a two-flower, like the same kind mm-hmm. of naive, the same kind of, oh yeah, I'm going to rush at this really dangerous thing mm-hmm. because a book says I have to. But it doesn't have the same charm as two-flower. It doesn't have the same amount of character. Yeah, Like, yeah. he's got a couple of good punchlines, 
and his name is Nigel the Destroyer, which is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. But beyond that, he's just not as likable as Two Flower or as relatable as Two Flower. Yeah, I think. And, and I feel like, um, like he's him and and indeed and and Conina and uh, what's his name, um, the Seraph of Alcali, uh, oh, Chris yeah. yeah, they're all like quite funny in their own way, but they're the kind of characters that like in. It, say side characters that in equal rights and in morph were used with much more efficiency you know where you have say esk meeting the the zunes the people who you know nominate one liar <laughs> and that makes for a pretty good you know like sidetrack but then she she ends up leaving them mm-hmm. and you know like with, with more uh like did the, the two side characters i suppose really if you're to say death's family as the main ones are kelly and cutwell who are integral to the plot and then you have a lot of other interesting asides like the the, uh, the witch in the the forest and the Agathian emperor and his grand vizier and they're only in there for a scene just to you know kind of like uh, I suppose just to be funny a lot of the time but also for in the witch's case for a bit of you know emotional depth and so on mm-hmm. and I, like I feel like like he's using those side characters much more efficiently in those two books whereas here he just goes back to you know like he um they pop up and he just can't seem to shake them off you know like yeah. like uh, Kanina and uh, Creosote and Nigel are just there till the end of the novel without any real reason for them to be there yeah. and it, that sounds really harsh because they're quite like you know they all have their funny moments um, but like it, it definitely is does feel like a bit of a a bit of, bit of a step back from the, the way he the efficiency with which he wrote the uh, Mort and Equal Rights yeah no you're right I mean Creosote kind of wanders off to get drunk <laughs> and then Nigel and Conina have a chat with Coin and and he says oh you will forget this conversation and they go we will forget this conversation mm-hmm. and then they leave so there's no payoff of any kind really for any of the side characters yeah, so yeah. yeah there's not really a whole lot of use for them to be around at that stage one thing they, they do um, fulfill I thought was that they, there's this running theme throughout the book of people being uncomfortable taking on the the roles or identities they, they either have or just sort of take for granted or feel obliged to have like you have you know Conina wanting to be a hairdresser but sort of her genes say she's a barbarian yeah um Nigel like wanting to be a barbarian but being useless at it mm-hmm. Creosote wanting to be a poet but like you know being really bad at that and even have that bit where they all sort of admit that around the after Rincewind has gone off on the uh on the carpet yeah. and then you have like Rincewind uh wants to be a wizard like you do have that bit where Nigel just says to him like, why don't you not be a wizard? And he, he can't comprehend what he's talking about at all. <laughs> I <love> yeah. That. <laughs> and the, you know, the importance, the hat symbolizing his identity. Mm. And Coin being really uncomfortable, being the sorcerer tyrant figure, you know, but again, not really knowing what he could do other than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and later, uh, like uh, when we had him, um, we had Steve on last time, he picked up on the, the uh, recurring thing in Mort of people sort of, helping each other through new experiences and unfamiliar territory mm-hmm. um and i felt like there's some of that here with like um like coin being just completely unable to know what to do without adult instruction or without the staff mm-hmm. like towards the end he says you know just tell me what to do um and Rincewind sort of has to help him so you do have there are kind of echoes of that sense of like you know uh, Pratchett putting forward this idea that like, you know you need someone to help you through this unfamiliar territory and like kind of walking through the dark becomes a lot easier you've got someone's hand to hold or someone to lead you that was nice but but that takes me to the, the visits with Rincewind and Wizardry and that being this role he's kind of 
can't escape it, it's uncomfortable with, was, did you feel like the Rincewind's, like, I, I like the idea of him being useless as a wizard, but still thinking of himself that he is a wizard anyway, and it's more than just doing the magic, yeah. but did you feel like his sort of, his dedication to it, and it, particularly his reverence for wizardly institutions, like how he's horrified at that Conina, a woman, is touching the, the hat of the Arch-Chancellor. Yeah. Did you feel that's kind of inconsistent with the Rincewind of the first two books, who, you know, always thought there was a better way of running the universe than doing magic, and, you know, kind of, like, makes allusions to electricity and, and seems sort of, like, just generally, like, understandably dissatisfied with the whole, like, academic uh, magic institution because it is hasn't hasn't served him very well anyway you know did you like i mean maybe again if we want to like you know just like extrapolate and go fan wank on this it could be that like you know now that he's sort of settled down in the university after the events of life fantastic that uh, i suppose conservative conservatism or just um mm. uh reverence for wizardly lore has grown on him but it, it did feel like you know not not a huge gap or discrepancy but just Again, reading them in order bring, brings these things home to me. Did, did that strike you at all? Yeah, no, you're definitely right. I don't think it struck me as much when I was reading it. But now that mm-hmm. you mention it, yeah, trying to harness lightning in the first books and in this one. Yeah, you're right. It kind of is slightly out of character for what we've known of Rincewind. Yeah. The one thing I really liked was Rincewind with the library, like his conversations with the library. Oh, yeah. And that moment when he comes back and finds the library destroyed and he starts sobbing. Mm-hmm. And I had to read that sentence about three times because despite how cowardly Rincewind has always been and how much he's always run away from danger and how much he hates risks and all that kind of thing, Rincewind sobbing was such a weird concept to me. Like, you'd never see that. You see him running yeah, away. Yeah, yeah, you're jokes, right. But he sobs and he's on the floor. And then he finds the books. Oh. And there's this tremendous line. Oh, I think I have it written down somewhere this brilliant line that he has where he'd said earlier that he doesn't like the sight of blood except for it's not necessarily blood that he doesn't like the sight of it's just his own that he finds upsetting and then when the librarian's repairing the books he suddenly says um do you mind if i go away i faint at the sight of glue <laughs> oh <and> glue <laughs> is book blood yeah oh wow yeah i hadn't noticed that i love that so much i loved how how affecting oh. it was for him to see these books being scorched and being put back together and yeah i found that side of glue so oh, i love that's that really part. good yeah yeah and it shows that that whole like the structure of the library and of the university kind of um like it's like a more extreme version of the magical modernity versus tradition we got with trimon like that coin just wants to have a scorched earth territory <laughs> of like the old world you know of just kind of like a Almost like a, I suppose a, a Khmer Rouge style year zero, where we're just gonna get rid of everything that was with magic and start anew, and it's gonna be much better. And how this is sort of like, I think there's just like an intrinsic uh, discomfort or even horror that people have with like you know um, progress or even revolution is one thing, but of like throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, and just like now we're gonna destroy everything, every institution you've you know you've associated with this field. And start again. Yeah. Um, I, I really think that's just because his father was a maniac, though. Yeah, yeah. What a madman. Um, Everything he does with the staff just seems like so incredibly extreme. Yeah. Like, of all the ways to treat wizardry. Oh, I'll demolish Unseen University and build a floating tower in the sky that's made <laughs> of magic. 
middle ground, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they do say a wizard's never heard of taste or tact, you know. So. That's true. Uh, Clearly. One, like, weakness and strength of this book, I thought, is kind in that, I don't know about you, but I found the bits with him and the university so much more interesting than any of the other bits. Like, you know, when I was reading it, and you just have, like, Rincewind and uh, Conina and Nigel, like, running around Alcali, I'm like, yeah want to get back to like the, the politicking in the university and seeing what this tremendously disturbing apocalyptic child and his evil sinister staff are going to get up to next that's what i want you know yeah. if you'll oblige me terry oh good grand i've got two pages that were, <laughs> that were back in you you and coins like disintegrating someone for <laughs> sneezing the wrong way or something yeah or crying in a broom cupboard while his staff yeah, twirls yeah. menacingly in the air like i think the whole um considering sort of this is a very oddly paced book and a very book that's very hard to pace because coin is just so powerful that like instantly he brings about this apocalyptic trend you know normally in these situations you have an almost ticking time bomb like scenario where it's like oh if we don't stop so and so in time or if this doesn't happen the apocalypse will happen and maybe you get a little bit of that idea life fantastic is a good example Mm -hmm. where like it's only at the very end you get this apocalyptic threat that's kind of been you know, hovering over the book the whole time that if the, you know, uh, eight spells are said by the wrong person um, and it's a disc is going to be destroyed and you get a little bit of that at the end and, you know, with, with Trimon and Dungeon Dimensions and then it's resolved whereas this coin comes in and he instantly has the power to destroy everything. There's, there's no waiting around. But So, like, all the bits where uh, Pratchett kind of goes back to the university and sees the progression of, like, you know, wizardry under coin's rule, I thought a really you know, well-paced and that, like, it would be very easy to kind of, uh, like, blow himself out early and then not know what to, you know, and then basically they would spend the rest of the book hanging around waiting for Rincewind to show up and stop them, essentially, you know, in a narrative sense. Yeah. But the intrigue with, you know, the, like, later hints that it's the staff that's driving coin, like you said, with the part they find him, and with um, Spelter and Carding kind of... uh both of them, you know, slowly coming to get really reluctant and guilty about the whole transformation mm. and that wizardry is undergoing. Um, yeah, it's, it's very well placed out, I think. And then even that 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 bit with the uh, them taking over the or coin trapping the gods, I quite like because it's just done so offhandly. But it arrives at a point where when he's uh, when he says, "Oh, you know, is there no higher power than wizards now?" and you're kind of, you kind of feel well, no, there's not. What is there? And when this guy suggests the gods, you know, it's almost the kind of unthinkability of like, oh, oh is he going to take on the gods now? <laughs> okay, he is. He just did. He just did in that sentence, in that one sentence, you know, in that paragraph. Yeah, I wasn't sure if that was anticlimactic or not, that he was just like, oh, well, I'll just do 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 and he does the thing with his hands, and then all of a sudden the gods are trapped in a small dimension. I actually would love to see the reactions of the gods. I'd love to see blind I.O. flipping tables. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we get a little bit of it when they're let out. Uh, oh, the hints yeah. on how angry they are. But you're right, we don't really... Uh, we don't get to see them up close, so to speak. Mm. Um, speaking of anticlimactic, uh, the, the fact that Rincewind beats the most powerful... Like, probably the most powerful person that's ever been depicted in Discworld. Mm. Well... I know, like, the possible exception of, like, Azrael and Reaper Man or something. Yeah. Um, that he defeats him with a half brick in a sock. That was almost <laughs> like... like we, we had talked about, uh, you know, discussed in, in some of the previous books whether the 
conclusions where in some you know to a certain degree or another somewhat anticlimactic mm. and it almost feels like this is a parody of that like you know there's there's no way there's no like uh, spectacular and fitting way that coin's going to be beaten by like a more powerful wizard or something or a more powerful sorcerer yeah. so <laughs> it's risen with a heartbreak and a sock <laughs> and it, it actually it, it actually works really well i think because i mean that we've We've had that that Chekhov's going right from the start with that um, meeting of Det and Ipsor, where they essentially make a, a contract that says Coin can only be stopped if he throws his staff away. Mm-hmm. Um, and incidentally, that whole confrontation between them uh, at start is is terrific because you kind of have some sympathy for for Ipsor, but also just you can see that he's so far gone past the point of sanity that he seems like a real. Uh, you know, you know, no good is going to come up this guy. Yeah. But anyway, you have to check out gun waiting to go off. You have in that brief scene depicted with um, Coin crying, uh, you know, and showing some guilt over what he's done, and with the the hints that the staff is sort of acting on its own when um, is it Spelter tracks down and and, yeah. and kills him and Coin does see that. Yeah. Uh, so you, you, then you have hints that well, like there is a possibility that Coin does want to throw this away because he, he doesn't like some of the things they're doing. And then, um, again, you have that point where he's just really anticlimactically, deliberately anticlimactically dealt with the biggest threat to, you know, to him. Just, like, snapping his fingers. Um, and here comes, like, the smallest, most pathetic threat. And it does seem like it would give him pause for thought at that point. Like, you know, what are you doing here? I've just beaten the gods. Um, yeah. It's perfect timing for that. Yeah. But I think you're right. I think it does, now, now that you mention it, it does feel like parody. That it's so anticlimactic that it's just Rincewind with a half brick in a sock. Mm-hmm. And he has to explain it to Coin in so much detail. <laughs> what are you going to do yeah, with that? Yeah. Well, you can hit people with it. And then do you destroy buildings with it? No. But then why do you do it? Well. <laughs> Does it destroy cities? <laughs> yeah. No. But you can hit people with it. He has to take, it through, take him through it step by step. Here's how you use a half brick yeah. in a sock. And you don't have to. And then he tries to hide it behind his back. Like, it's so, so funny. And so laughable. But also, I think it's a really good way to handle the fact that Coin is essentially still a kid. Mm-hmm. Like, he's so young. And mm-hmm. it's... For it to, for him to have been defeated and for him to decide to throw away the staff based on... But this guy's funny. Yeah. But I like this guy because he's got a half brick and a sock and he's really harmless. But it's like... You know, it's... Well, I'd probably say cute. Yeah. But, like, it's... it's I don't even know what the word for it is. It's not cute. <laughs> but it's like very endearing to say the endearing, least endearing thank you but that's exactly what it is mm-hmm. he'd want to keep Rincewind as a pet <laughs> somebody of that you know that mindset yeah that's, that's defeated the gods and everything would be like oh no I like this one can I keep him <laughs> can I keep him <laughs> like for a kid to throw his toys out of the pram yeah can I keep him no kill him but I want to keep him I think he's funny no you can't keep him and the staff yeah. is taking on a father role there for probably yeah. one of the first times ever in the book. Everything else has been driven by power and just in this one moment he's like this really paternal figure. No, do what I say. Kill him. No, I want to keep him because he's funny. Oh, I thought it was brilliant. I think it's one of my favourite one of my favourite Rincewind endings anyway. Maybe one of my favourite endings but it's kind of too early in the series to say that again. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I'm a big fan of the ending of interesting times but the great climax with the terracotta army and the bit where he ends up on 4x and 
gets the boomerang and oh no they'd say you are the great bloke or something like that <laughs> and he'd be in an adventure again he throws it away and of course it hits him in the back of the head like a um but sure what we'll get there and uh, way down the line um i do think as well he does a pratchett does a really good job with coin of just establishing this sense of um kind of a, like fever and anticipation of what a sorcerer can do and you know like a sense of like you know foreboding almost like fear around how uh how powerful he is like the, the line about him staring at a at a point at the back of your skull like his eyes is yeah. is probably overused as it goes on i think he has about three different characters say like um you know say they felt like that but it's used really effectively at first when i think death is the first one when he holds coin as an infant and it says for the first time in a long time he found himself uh meeting a stare he found it like you know hard to look back at um yeah. and that really sets up to go oh wow if even death and the kind of how he sets up just the, the role of a of a sorcerer but you don't quite know what they've done um and when it kind of shows up initially and you have that like this great the atmosphere i think is, is very well crafted um where you know well, you have some idea from that opening that he is this tremendously, you know, powerful sorcerer. But all the wizards are just treating him like a nuisance or an amusement with, you know, oh, who's this kid? Um, so you're waiting for you're waiting for the shit to hit the fan, essentially. Yeah. And it does. And I think it's almost a pity that probably at this point the the world of the disc hadn't been established enough um for their to be a sufficient threat that coin could just other than well like much later you know he he does it to the gods um mm. but if he if he could have came in early and like beaten some done something like be, bested some recurring character or you know done something to some element we as readers are really familiar with and that thought like oh if if he can beat so and so or you know if he can get rid of that god what's this guy gonna do you know um like which does happen to a certain extent with the gods but that's right at the end whereas like it would have been nice to like get a bit like that at the beginning to help just like you know help that build that sense of anticipation of oh i've got two tours of this book left and he's already gotten rid of like i think he'll, he'll use that technique pretty uh well pretty later with the um lords and ladies and carpe Gaelum, i think have like sort of false finishes where granny Weatherwax confronts the villains and gets beaten and then you know then you're left thinking oh well if, if they've beaten her what's going to happen and what's going to be the ending now if she's confronted them but it hasn't worked like uh you have it almost retrospective uh, retrospectively with veterinary where yeah, who's such say. a you know uh like so incredibly intelligent and you know forward thinking it's such a brilliant planner and utterly unflappable uh so looking back on it you know having read some of the other ones it seems crazy how easily uh the wizards defeat him but you don't have it reading them through in sequence this i think this is the first time he's named actually isn't it, it? is yeah yeah. Keeping uh, yeah so you know you you don't you don't have that say it's just like he's just the patrician and, and he, he sort of sets him up when he runs that lines but he's the kind of he looks like the kind of man when he blinks you mark it off on the calendar and uh <laughs> he didn't institute a reign of terror just on the occasional light shower um but yeah again you don't have that same sense of weight that would come with him with what will happen later when like the the elves seem to defeat granny weatherox you know early on and uh, things like that yeah um 
Yeah, I, although I think I was almost annoyed that they managed to defeat Veterinary so quickly. Mm-hmm. Because having read it and, and absolutely loving Veterinary as a character and thinking, wait a second. Like, I can't remember which book it is that comes later where they where I can't remember who it is that they trap Veterinary in the castle. But he's he's got all of these secret doors. Oh, so. it's Guards Guards, I think, isn't it? He's the locks on the inside. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you'd think that Veterinary is surrounded, but no, he's got a secret escape panel and he's got a secret dungeon. He's, got, he's thought everything through. Mm-hmm. And then in this, it's just like, snaps fingers and he's a lizard and he's a lizard for the rest of the book and he doesn't come up with a cunning plan in lizard form or figure out a way to communicate or he doesn't do anything it was almost disappointing I kind of thought that it would be great to have veterinary in this book as the later veterinary yeah like veterinary versus coin will be at at the very minimum a really good conversation (laughs) yeah yeah I think the um the the veterinary we we later know like you know if, if uh, just giving him five minutes to talk to Coin could have exactly. <laughs> irrevocably altered the plot. Speaking of guards, guards, we do get a kind of um, just just some veterinary shows. I would just look at it here. We do get a foreshadowing of of carrot with the oh, and it goes on. Um, legend said that one day the city would have a king again. That went on to various comments with magic swords, strawberry birthmarks, and all other things. Legends gabble about in these circumstances. We'll never see one of those. <laughs> um. But I, I think uh, veterinary, like, I mean, obviously it's just from, like, you know, in, in, in real actual terms, Pratchett just probably hadn't put as much thought into the character yet. He was just a patrician, you know, so he, like, that's, that's why he gets bested so easily. But I feel like from a kind of, like, meta death of the author saying this is someone who, you know, who, like, has read, like, almost all of the ones that will that follow on from sorcery mm. this is almost like like this weird bridge between the early novels where magic is so prominent that we talked about with um with color magic and life fantastic and to a certain extent equal rights too mm. um with the later ones where it doesn't become as prominent because even though veterinary is you know a, like a kind of a formidable adversary that he's you know doesn't isn't generally threatened by any of the villains that will later pop up in uh you know in the discord books he features in like here, it's like, you know, coin is just such like an out of this world threat that there'd be no way like veterinary could, you know, could best him uh, just by virtue of like not being not being this incredible magic user. Like I, I said there about how he had five minutes to talk to him, but that's even supposing he, he would be prepared for him. Like he is like with the later watch novels, he's really on top of all the conspiracies that's happening. Yeah. So he sort of knows the motivations of the villains here. Like coins has got villain who essentially like arises. You know, I feel bad for calling him a villain because he's a kid who's manipulated, but you know what I mean? He's a threat that sort of arrives out of, out of nowhere. Um, so there would be no real way for veterinary to know. So it's, it's like this strange bridging of it where it's like these, these threats that arrive from nowhere, the likes of Coin and the creatures from the dungeon dimensions, they're at odds with Vednari and the way he will handle villains who later arise from kind of very clear, clearly depicted circumstances in Ankh-Morpork or the wider Discworld. You know, you have like the likes of uh, like Edward Death being d- dissatisfied with the current Ankh- the way Ankh-Morpork's run and wanting to reinstitute the monarchy. And the Dragon King of Arms is, is somewhat similar in Feet of Clay, you know. Um and Veterinary's obviously very au fait with the like the jingoistic um motivations of the aristocrats in Jingo. 
so late, much later, you have these villains whose motivations arise from a context within the setting, whereas mm-hmm. Coin is part of these early, early part, uh, like the earlier Discworld world books, where the villain is just this incredibly powerful magical force, essentially from almost out of our world, who you know pops up and no one's really prepared for them, and through sheer dumb luck, rinse wins, <laughs> you know, dumb luck and some pluck, rinse wins manages to defeat them. Yeah, you're right. That's true. You know what I want to talk about, actually? Yeah. Is magic in the Discworld. Now, obviously, that's in this book. Mm-hmm. All over the place. In in a lot of different ways. But we've been talking a bit about the urban-rural thing. Mm-hmm. And there were some really interesting lines in this book. Like, um, wizards can never go home. Really struck me. And then Terry Pratchett does this big, this big joking part. Like, you know, wizards don't understand that. Wizards don't have a lot of plug yeah, philosophy. Philosophers. Wizards don't understand why you can't cross the same river twice. Wizards would think that you can do it 30 times in a minute. And then wizards aren't allowed to have wives, but they're allowed to have parents. Like those two lines, wizards can never go home. Wizards aren't allowed to have wives, but they're allowed to have parents. Like that sets wizards up with a family and a place they come from, Mm -hmm. but not a place they can go back to. Which is kind of, I think, in keeping with the whole, the urban, the high learning, the separatist kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But then you have the same thing with sorcerers, because at the end... um, when Coin creates his own dimension, there's that line, sorcerers never come, never become part of the world. They merely wear it for a while. So wizards it's aren't part line. of where they are. It is. Mm. Wizards aren't part of where they are. Wizards can't go home. Wizards can't go back to their family. Wizards can't belong in the same place they came from. And wizards can't be, and sorcerers can't be part of the world. They yeah. just wear it. And then you have like the other side of that coin with the witches who are so rural and so... Community. Intrinsic to their community, yeah. Exactly. And Nanny Og certainly has a, a family and several husbands. <laughs> That's true. The uh, the business of like, um, I, I've only thought of it now that you've said it, but wizards not being able to go home and sorcerers essentially having to leave the world. Is well, he describes the sorcerer as a wizard squared. So <laughs> it's, it, it is like you know, if wizards can't go you know can't go back to their home like to get you know to a certain point where they're so entrenched in magic and its institutions Mm -hmm. that they can't really experience you know civilian life for want of a better term again with sorcerers that's extended to the entire world like you know (laughs) they sort of they live they're obviously raised in the world live in the world for a while Mm -hmm. and then you know at a certain stage um uh yeah at a certain stage they just um have to have to leave the entire world like they, they can't go back to that yeah yeah you're right that makes complete sense actually terry pratchett's very clever <laughs> yes indeed there's some actually there's some uh uh we'll, we'll come to it later and a, a question someone sends us on on twitter off to but there's some really amazing references he's wound up in this one like the uh all the bits in creosote's garden he, he gets through multiple references to um samuel coleridge's kubla khan the poem about building xanadu uh Oh, I missed that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's uh, I, I, I can't remember. He's the dimensions of, of the Roxy, um, are like you know this the same dimensions he uses to describe the size of Xanadu, and there's different bits. And um, you also have a, <laughs> a really weird bit where like, essentially the the sweet, um, Creosote gives them is a crunchy bar, <laughs> like <it laughs> describes like being honeycomb and and, and crunchy, yeah. um, and I think covered in chocolate as well. <laughs> <laughs> is that the thing that turned out to be locusts though no I don't okay. think so um, and then you have these really specific references to is it like the song of songs or the song of Susanna in the bible like all the all Chris bits with it like hair looking like a herd of goats 
mm-hmm. are all from like yeah. yeah this passage in the Bible where it's like this um, you know song that I'm sure uh, L Space like Pratchett website do great annotated annotations for the books where they'll pick up on all these references yep. and like I'm sure you know prior to people getting familiarity with them like well, it must have been one in a hundred that noticed this reference <laughs> yeah. but it's there you know and you brought up before in the air about the like terrible point about the wizards being wizards which is cringeworthy but like it's it the is. stuff like that it's you know alongside those you know really awful ones you have these references that are so kind of um so subtle that work anyway because you don't uh, that you just see them as something bizarre and funny if you don't realize their reference mm-hmm. and if you do realize you think who who references that you know <laughs> yeah i never would have ref- ref- realized that reference and it comes up a couple of times doesn't it a few people try and make that comment about the goats mm-hmm. yeah i agree so trying to tell the barmaid at the end as well yes that's the next time it comes up. Korea Sutton, the barmaid, is very funny as well, actually. Mm. I know I said he doesn't get much of a payoff, but him getting all worked up because she says she knows, she knows the story backwards Yeah, is a very good punchline for his whole harem of storytellers. Yeah, and it's a nice, um, I suppose, for a, for a, like a book that's traded on really big moments and huge scale of events, it's nice that the end is just very low-key... Just him in a bar, you know, essentially being told a story about the about the events of the book. Really, it's into that, which then placed the whole thing in the context of like, you know, yeah, we're we're like this might have seemed huge. It's the apocalypse, but we're just or uh, no apocalypse, yeah. but we're we're just moving on. You know, like this is just another story in this world full of stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking about that as well because when we said um, we said when we where it covered Life Fantastic that it was one of the few global events in the disc world with the star appearing in the sky and seemingly everyone all over the disc being able to see it yeah. and I'm, I'm sort of ambiguous as to whether it's sort of a, it's well it's left ambiguous as to whether sorcery is as well and we'll, we'll come to this in another um, uh, listener question but uh, like because Coyne the way he reverses the changes done to Ankh Morpork at the end mm-hmm. It's 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 sort of obvious as to whether that just turns back everyone's memories. Like you, you certainly have him very directly doing it with Conina and Nigel yeah. when he meets them, and he just makes them forget about the conversation. So you are left to wonder whether, like, it's, it's huge. Like the whole city's got destroyed. I think Querm is said is is said to be destroyed at some point. Alcali's utterly devastated. All of that is undone by Coin. And you would wonder, is, is everyone's memories of it undone at a certain point too? The wizards obviously aren't, because they later allude to it. I think it's in, in interesting times, they kind of, um, they they sort of, they make a joke, he makes a joke about how they all pretend that they were like at the densest at the time the <laughs> sorcery thing was going on, because no one wants to be implicated in what the wizards are doing. Yeah. And how, like, uh, moving pictures with Ricoli, it's it's like hinted at that, like, they have to get an outsider because... Of like all the the crazy stuff that was going on within the university, mm-hmm. but you would wonder whether is it meant to be that everyone else has the rest of the world has forgotten about the events in in sorcery? Um, like I, I I did see some some write up on Rick Cully saying how part of his like his hold on the leadership comes from the fact that he's the only one with a genuine excuse that he genuinely wasn't there, <laughs> and he knows what they all got up to. And he can fill in vet like the blanks for veterinary about it. Veterinary probably has this like 
what was I doing for those two weeks I was a lizard? Like he just, it, it, well, yeah, it's definitely said at the end that he doesn't remember that. He just kind of like the last, like it's like the last while has been a blur, mm-hmm. and he sort of has a has the urge to eat flies, but he doesn't know why. Mm-hmm. Um, but you you'd wonder like is that again is that is that true of everyone? Like it, like would it work if Ridcully told veterinary? Oh yeah, if for if for whatever reason he's like the wizard's done that to you, not me though. I was gone. Or would veterinary just be like, no, I have, I have no memory of that because Coin um, wiped it out. You know, would it, would it jog his memory or is the Coin's kind of re- big reset button spell at the end uh, reverse all that? Yeah, I wonder about that. I hadn't even occurred to me that it might affect their memories as well. Like when Conina and Nigel forget their conversations, I didn't even click that it was going to be that they were forgetting the entire events of everything. Well, m- maybe they're not... Um, I in, in that moment, I, I just felt like like that bit kind of hints at the idea that in kind of undoing the damage he's done, Coin can also just undo people's memories of events, and he might see fit to do that because that might see fit that might be part of undoing the damage, you know. Well, it makes a lot of sense because there is that thing. Uh, the librarian says he put things back good as old rather than good as new. Yeah, you know where where like it couldn't help you new even if you restored like more work to what it looked like if everyone could you know. Uh, remember all these events that have gone on and would cause, I suppose, a big sea change in the thinking towards Magic Den. If he's putting things back good as old, yeah, maybe he's just uh, putting us back to the status quo we had at the um, at the start, uh, start of the book. I think you're off something there. Uh, oh, I just spotted another nice reference here, which is um, about Rincewind, and it's down these mean streets a man must walk, he thought, and along some of them... Uh, Along some of them, he will break into a run, which is a reference to Raymond Chandler's essay. But so, like the, the like the about writing crime, and it's down these mean streets a man must walk. And he describes the hard-boiled detective character. Oh, nice. Well, we're on that actually. Ank Morpork gets a little more fleshing out here with him. I thought the the business of the broken drum, which is or the, no, the mended drum rather, which is just like utter danger zone in the color of magic. And it still is to a certain extent, but he qualifies it by comparing it with the troll's head in the shades and how like a child could walk into the mended drum and you know be confident nothing would happen to them. Yeah. And that's part of this what we talked about before, this like civilizing process of Ank Morpork from the kind of like a sword and sorcery team park early on yeah. to like an actual working city. Mm-hmm. Like it's like he'll he knows is the drum is gonna be his go to pub whenever he's gonna show a pub in Ank Morpork, so he needs it to be less wild and, you know, crazy than it was in the color of magic and he, he you know he qualifies it there mm-hmm. we also have i think like the shades get you know discussed a bit for the first time i think oh no sorry mort but mort has a brief detour into the shades oh yes of course cool. we get we get a bit more about them here mm-hmm. uh, so again yeah like more work being fleshed out we see alcali for the first time as well which we'll see more in jingo mm-hmm. so while this is like this book is very much a throwback to the first two um kind of writing about a seat of your pants, making it up as you go along, fantasy, uh, like, satire. Um, there's still this world-building uh, that um, that will go on to build the, the disc world we'll become a lot more familiar with mm-hmm. in, the, in the books you go along. Yeah, you're right. It's great to see that from the beginning, chronologically, mm-hmm. and see the see the way Ant Morpork gets bigger and better and mm-hmm. more recognisable. Yeah, yeah. It's really nice to see that from the start. Um, I'm all out of notes. Did you have any more thoughts on uh, on sorcery? 
Um, I don't think I really had anything else except for I've written down the line for no reason just because I love it so much. It looked like a piano sound shortly after being dropped down a well. <laughs> <laughs> That's in the middle of a bunch of really, really solid metaphors and similes. <clears throat> that was my last note and it was just, this is really good. <laughs> so there wasn't a discussion point there. No, I'm out. Okay, okay. Um, so all that remains to us before we, uh, before we rank sorcery in our, in our major list is to do our little list, our, our um, world elephant list to the great Atuan of our major list. And given that sorcery continues the early uh, Discworld tradition of presenting a threat to the entire world, this one's actually got a name, the, the Apocalypse, uh, we're going to give you the top five apocalyptic threats in Discworld. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, number five, you want to give some? Number five is the Light Fantastic. That's the creatures from the Dungeon Dimensions again. Yeah, breaking okay. through through Trimon's head. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably because it's the first time we see them, they carry a lot of uh, kind of weight and gravitas there. And the business about his eyes being blank and um, worse things than evil. That's Can, true, and yeah. all the wizards being frozen. Yeah, and it's the star creating a kind of like other external apocalyptic threat does it pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, number four is, is sorcery. Um because essentially we get like an ongoing apocalypse throughout the entire book, kinds just tearing the fabric of the world apart, brick by brick, you know, um, starting with the institution of magic and ending up with the gods. And you have that like wonderful image of the ice giants riding the glaciers just across the landscape yep. and uprooting a lot of the landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, Plus the tower versus the arch chancellor's hat is yeah. like a ridiculous battle. Pretty deadly. Yeah. Uh, number three. Number three is moving pictures. Yes. Yeah. Which uh, gives us the creatures from the dungeon dimensions again, but it's probably the best use of them. I think uh, we'll, we'll I'll have to refresh our memory and get to moving pictures. But I feel they kind of fit in with the the theme of like uh, in that of style going beyond substance and of sort of uh, like an excessive aimless belief and magic just giving them a, a hole to get through. Um, I feel like, I just feel like they tie into that book thematically in a way that they they don't in the early ones where they're just there as a threat. Um, and number two is Hogfather, where uh, the sun won't rise if people don't believe in the Hogfather, and just uh, the conceptual gymnastics Terry Pratchett <laughs> works with with belief and with the evolution of like you know winter gods and sacrifices and winter solstice into you know Christmas and Hogwatch, and the impact of it and like the. Tiatima's plan essentially to well it's it's to kill the hogfighter but it, it will result in the sun not coming up is just you know uh, it's just a wonderful connection of concepts and I'm really looking forward to dealing with that when we get there so our number one our number one is the apocalypse from Thief of Time where time is actually going to stop because the most obsessive compulsive clockmaker in the world has been commissioned to create a clock or is just doing it for fun I actually can't remember but either way, he's creating a clock that is going to be so precise that it's going to actually entirely stop time. Yeah, I had realised there's one more thing we need to do, which is this, for the, for the first time so far, we've actually got listener questions. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, So big, big thanks to uh, Pencil Monkey Jensen <laughs> on Twitter for uh, for getting in touch with us. And he slash she, not, not too sure there, mm-hmm. has given us two Um have you got them there? I should do. 
Will I just make the uh, the, the like wi- wired internet sounds already? Oh yeah, yeah please. The, can like, can you do the dial-up sounds? <laughs> Etc. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now that that's done. Um, okay. So uh, pencil monkey Jensen at Jensel Monkey uh, asks us. Uh, do you think Sir Terry was implying uh, insert coin game over pun with coin and he, he sent the link or he or she sent the link to Elspace where they they speculate about that um, and that that is such a stretch that had I been <laughs> asked that before like when we were approaching sorcery I would have said no but given the fact that he got those like like Song of Susanna or Song of Song puns in and all the, the Kubla, Kubla Khan ones and given that Pratchett is does have like familiarity and a fondness for computer games, it's probably shown uh, most in most directly with uh, only you can save mankind. Oh yeah. I, I I would be willing to believe that that he he was. I don't know if we'll ever know, but I think he could have been. I th- I like to think he was as well. I hope he was because that's just made the book so much better for me. <laughs> as soon as I heard that question, I I appreciated the book on a whole new level. So now you couldn't convince me yeah. that it's not. And insert coin game over. Well, when it comes to puns, I wouldn't put much past Terry Pratchett. <laughs> and also the name coin, like I remember hearing it speculated somewhere that it's, it's just meant to be like a takeoff of Colin because Colin is just such a like, you know, it doesn't sound a very intimidating name, very much like like sounds like like just like little boy called Colin. But I think even though coin is only one letter off being Colin, it doesn't sound very like you know no. I, I would have never made that association until I read this. Yeah. So I think you know. Like the insert coin game over makes a better explanation for why he would name the character coin. Yeah. So Pencil Monkey's second question is, what do you think the Lonker witches were up to at the time since they didn't get involved in this magical apocalypse? And I suppose that brings us back to the question of whether, like, you know, um, whether that reset button coin presses at the end just literally resets everything and they, they don't, re- whether they were doing anything, they don't remember it. Because, and this isn't something I'd like to speculate on too much, but if the ice giants are coming out from the hub on their giant glaciers, mm. they'd probably get the Lunkra. Like, Lunkra's quite, it's, it, you know, it's it's near nearer to the hub than Ankh-Mor Park, right? Yeah. So there's a chance, like, they, they just rolled right over Lunkra and killed everyone there, <laughs> and coin only reversed that at the end. Granny Weatherwack cannot be killed by anybody, ice giant or otherwise. <laughs> Um, that's that's a that's a fair point. That's a fair point. <laughs> She's one of the Terry Pratchett characters I really think is indestructible. <laughs> I'm also I'm also unsure like how you know far or how close Lunker is to the hub. I'm just sort of speculating there. I know it's certainly be in their path before Ankh Morpork, mm. but uh, I don't think I'm not sure like they're right at the gates of Ankh Morpork when they their trek diminishes. So that could be wrong too. Mm. Um, well, I would imagine that you know whether they remember it or not. When it was going on, they were probably uh, just had their, like, probably had their hands full keeping the people in Lunkra calm about it. Um, who, I, I can imagine some kind of like, uh, like you know, how in Lords and Ladies you have Diamanda and her coven who embrace this much more showy form of witchcraft. Oh, yeah. I could imagine people in Lunkra like, all, like, being really attracted to wizardry in the same way. Like, when, when, uh, you know, when sorcery is going on, there's all this crazy things like just embracing this idea like oh wizards are blowing up cities this is what wizards do and you know what have our witches ever done and then just like getting a, a talking down from granny or a slap from nanny and that sort of uh that keeping keeping everyone in Lankra in check so to speak and that's true well i definitely see nanny og doing that and granny weatherwax i see just probably knowing that this is going on 
but at the same time being like, but this is wizard business. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly, if, if we're to go into the granny we saw in Equal Rights, she's very reluctant to be involved in wizard business. She's, mm-hmm. you know, kind of, uh, it takes a, it takes a good while before she she's won over to actually taking us to UU. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'd just say to her, uh, crowd control, keeping keeping the village calm. Yeah. Or keeping the, the kingdom calm, rather. Yeah. Um, so thanks a million for those uh, pencil monkey incident. And if, again, like we absolutely wholeheartedly encourage people uh, in future to send us in questions when, you know, before we record, or even just in touch in between, if you, if, if there's anything we've said in this, in this episode that's really struck you or in the previous episode, just like, you know, get in touch, start a fight with us. <laughs> Um, a civil, a civil, gentle, gentlemanly, ladylike fight, mm-hmm. but a fight nonetheless, an, an intellectual battle, or yeah, any kind of comment, just hit us with it, and we'll be back in touch, and you know, we'll probably discuss it on air as well, um, right? So there only remains to rank sorcery right now. For those of you who, for whatever reason, if this is the first episode you've heard, we're ranking the Discworld books in order of the, being the absolute objective best, or. <laughs> More, slightly more this. accurately our personal favourites as we go along mm. so we're, we're building that list along the way and right now our our list is uh, number one Morse number two Life Fantastic number three Equal Rights and number four Colour of Magic so where does sorcery fit into that list for you Rose? Well I did say before it's definitely not in the same league as Mort anyway yeah. uh, I think it fits in somewhere around the Colour of Magic and the Life Fantastic it, it feels like it belongs in yeah, those yeah definitely but I'll leave this one open to you. What do you think? Where does it fit between those? Um, I feel like right now, Life Fantastic's number two for us, and I don't. I feel like it's definitely not better than the Life Fantastic because partly because those elements I talked about with Rincewind's seemingly like tangential relationship to the plot that you know makes his uh, like his cowardice a little more grating and seem a little more kind of like run through. Um, I I think it's 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 whether and it's probably I'd probably put it behind equal rights like there's a lot about it I like mm-hmm. um but it maybe it's just because like it it feels like less ambitious than equal rights in being a throwback to the first two whereas equal rights was a real new departure yeah. um so I suppose it's it's between it and the color of magic for like the new number 4 spot or the you know the number 5 spot um and it's it's tough because it's kind of like meta concerns are driving it here. Like I'm taking into account with the color of magic, well, that it was the first one, and you know, like mm-hmm. the, uh, there's a lot that leads from that, and also you kind of kind of expect him to get everything, depict the world he'd be depicting twenty books later in the first one. But uh, and then with with sorcery, I'm kind of like trying to take it in some merits, but also kind of reading through in sequence, it comes across as a little more jarring and a little more disappointing after Eagle Rights and certainly after Mort. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it's hard to rank them like that. I'd say, um, I'd probably put it maybe probably probably just behind Color Magic, actually, if only because, and this is like you know, very slim margins. I just felt like, you know, like Color of Magic was a more um, engaging, gripping read. Like, I felt like I flew through that rereading it for this podcast. And I didn't, you know, struggle through sorcery. But if I'm kind of rating them on just like that 
you know, readability, really base enjoyment factor. I felt like I got more of it, a bit more of it with Color of Magic. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I, you know, for me, I, I said sorcery, and from what I've read, a lot of people, you know, don't like the fact that it feels like a, a throwback even even this early on in the series. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's certainly, uh, you know, like a, a point going against it. But I feel like as we go on, you know, it, it probably won't be too near the bottom. There's a lot about it I like, but I think right now... It's it's at the bottom of the first five. Just like I, I feel like all of you know all of the four for me just have have something a little more, a little more on it. In you know in my overall taking them like something that made me enjoy it a little more, mm-hmm. or in the case of more like a lot more. Um, <laughs> yeah. What would you, do? Do you agree, or would you would you say it would go above color magic? I kind of think it goes above color magic yeah? for me, but I'm not sure exactly why. I think it's just because there's a couple of those very poignant lines for me. Like, mm-hmm. as I said, the wizards can never go home and Rincewind discovering the library and having this actual emotional break where he's sobbing and things like that. Like, there seemed to be more emotion in it for me than Colour of Magic. Okay. But at the same time, the Colour of Magic did have that great sword and sorcery thing. Mm-hmm. It did have some great jokes as well. So I don't feel too strongly about it. Those, those two were pretty closely on par for me as well. Yeah, yeah. Um... You know, you 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 kind of won me over. I'd say I'd say I'm not like a maybe I'm unwilling to just like say we'll, we'll put it in a four um, for now because uh, yeah, it does have a little more to it. And even like coins conflict with the staff has a bit more emotional weight than goes on with color magic. And I, I did the reason I felt reluctant with this is I feel bad, particularly with color magic with like putting things uh, above it because of like uh, you know. Um, like an emotional or thematic weight because Color Magic clearly isn't even attempting to do those. It's not like it's it's trying to do it and it fails. It's just this like crazy succession of fantasy set pieces that are really hilarious and, you know, utterly enjoyable to read. But I suppose nonetheless, you know, whether it's trying to do or not, it doesn't have them and this does. And yeah, I suppose right now that has it nipping ahead. So number four now, Sorcery um, with Color Magic uh, at the bottom. But as I said, I... I as I was feeling for sorcery, I did color magical stay at the bottom for, well, maybe maybe for a while because some of the ones coming up are just ace. But like, yeah. I think when, when we're over and done with, that won't be um, it won't be in the, it won't be in the relegation zone. To use football speak, mm. <laughs> um, right? So that's us for this week. Uh, and if you want to get in touch, we're on Facebook Radio Morepork. We're on Twitter at Radio Morepork. You can get in touch with us by email with radiomorepork at gmail.com and our website, where you're probably listening to this right now, is, of course, radiomorepork.wordpress.com. So, thanks, and we'll see you again with, with Weird Sisters, with the uh, with the Lonkra Witches proper after our trial run of equal rights, essentially. Excellent, yeah. yeah. Okay, so, goodbye. Bye, thank you. <laughs>